Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Um, We're picking up today where we left off last time, which was John chapter 19, verse 16, which reads, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. So the trial is now over, and we've arrived at John's account of the crucifixion, and it's somber and somewhat restrained. It is mentioned in the fewest possible words, and it merely states the act the place, and the fact that two others shared the same fate as Jesus. Perhaps it was simply too terrible, too traumatic to relay all its gruesome details, or possibly it was just that in a day when crucifixion was still a current method of execution, it was too familiar to even require a description. I think the only thing you can really do is read the passage and let the story have its full impact on you. So it reads like this. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. The soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests, uh, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shears, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have their legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it, had given, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. 
These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and alos, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, in this passage, we have Jesus speaking three times from the cross. If you add in the synoptics, apparently there are seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross, but John records only three of them. A dying man's words are almost always remembered long after the event, so these words are worth looking at. Verse 26 is the first occurrence where Jesus looks, sees his mother, sees John, the beloved disciple, and says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Actually, if you look at the story of Jesus, you notice that relatives play a significant part in the story. Of the 12 disciples, there were two sets of brothers and five of them were cousins. Later, James and Jude, Jesus' half-brothers, become both disciples and also uh, contributors to the scriptures. So there were relatives at the cross in these final moments. Mary, his mother, and an unnamed aunt, we see in verse 26. Can't help thinking that as Mary stood watching all of the events unfold, she would have recorded Simeon's words some 33, spoken some 33 years earlier, where he said in Luke 2.35, and a sword will also pierce your soul. See, the Greek word for sword there indicates a large Thracian sword. It's the same word that's used in the Septuagint translation, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's the same word that was used to describe Goliath's sword, and it indicates the extent of Mary's grief. This was no minor pinprick. Even in this moment, at this point, Jesus honours all his human obligations. He's thinking of others, he's thinking of their pain even in the midst of his own, and he ensures that his mother will be well cared for once he's gone. Normally, the care of a parent would pass to a younger sibling or a younger brother. We aren't told why this didn't happen. We know his half-brothers, at least at this point in time, weren't sympathetic to his cause, although, as I mentioned briefly before, James and Jude would later become so. So from this moment on, the beloved disciple, John, would henceforth be Mary's protector and provider. And the scripture says from that moment on, he took her into his home. The second words that Jesus speaks from the cross that John records are found in verse 28 where he says, I thirst. Now the reasons for this statement are profoundly obvious. Firstly, it was about midday and the heat would in Palestine at that point in time be quite intense. Secondly, we know through the act of uh, the whipping and the crucifixion that he would have be suffering severe dehydration as a result of losing large volumes of blood.
When that happens, apparently the blood pressure falls and pushes the body into shock. The human body attempts to redress that balance, and drinking water would have the effect of increasing the blood flow, so hence the intense thirst. Uh, such thirst was a normal part of the torture of crucifixion. Psalm 22, which is a well-known messianic psalm, and a psalm which actu ac very accurately predicts the impact and effects of crucifixion hundreds of years before actually crucifixion was a method of capital punishment, hinted at this. Actually, in verse 20, 18 of Psalm 22, it, it says, They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. So obviously that's prophetic of what's happening at Calvary. But in verse 15 it says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So the intense thirst of the crucifixion is an irony really, because this is the one who had said to the woman at Samaria, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. And who cried out on the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. One of the ironies of John's Gospel. The fulfillment of another prophetic psalm occurs uh, when they give Jesus drink or, or cheap wine, sour wine to drink. Psalm 69, verse 21 says, They put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. The soldiers soaked a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop plant, and then put it up against Jesus' lips. And it was a very cruel twist. It's been said that if there's a cruel way of doing anything, the Romans already do it. Sour wine doesn't increase, or it doesn't quench thirst, it actually increases it. It's a bit like giving a thirsty man salt water to drink. The Romans didn't only know how to kill a body, they knew how to break a spirit as well. Again, we're faced with the irony of John's gospel. The one who started his ministry by turning water into the finest wine is reduced at the end of his life to drinking cheap, crass, sour wine. The hyssop plant on which the wine was placed should ring for us all sorts of Passover bells. The hyssop was a small aromatic plant and it was a significant plant in the Passover ritual. Exodus chapter 12 verse 22 tells us that the blood of the Passover lamb was sprinkled on the doorpost and the lintels of the door by using the hyssop plant. In Leviticus 14 it tells us that the hyssop plant was used in the ceremony of the cleansing of the leper. And you'll probably be aware of that wonderful psalm, Psalm 51, um, where David is repenting of his behavior and he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean in Psalm 51 verse 7. All that the hyssop plant prophetically speaks of in the Old Testament is now being acted out and fulfilled in Jesus. For it's here at the cross that judgment is avoided, that cleansing and healing is administered. Around about three in the afternoon, his third statement from the cross is uttered. And in verse 30, it says, it is finished. That cry might have signified different things to different people as they gathered around the cross. For the soldiers, it is finished, probably meant nothing more than it's knockoff time. For the crowd, it's, well, we might as well go home, the show is over. For the priests, it probably meant that the nightmare of the last three years is over for them, and this troublesome Galilean prophet is now out of their hair. 
For Pilate it might well be, I can finally sleep now, this terrible situation is finished. For Mary, a treasured relationship is finished. For Jesus, it didn't mean any of these things. He wasn't simply saying, well, it's over. The Greek statement has the idea of something that is rounded out to perfection, something that has been accomplished. The Greek tense is the perfect tense, which means something has been done and it will stay being done. So the question, it begs the question, what, it, what, it, what was it that was finished? Well, the great story, the great narrative of God has now been in Jesus brought to its crucial climax. History climaxes at the cross. Everything in the Old Testament story leads to this place. And this place is the linchpin for everything going forward. The sin of the world has been judged and condemned in the flesh of the Messiah. So that Paul later in Romans chapter 8 verse 3 was to say, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Here the Lamb of God, as John had prophetically uttered at the beginning of the gospel, the Lamb has taken away the sin of the world. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus is recorded as being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. And it says that they discussed his decease, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. That's, that's really unusual language. We very rarely speak of death as an accomplishment. We tend to consider it as a submission, as an acquiescence to the inevitable. What was it that he was going to accomplish? Well, the word, the decease that he was going to accomplish, that word decease in the Greek is the word exodus. And the implications are profound and powerful. The Old Testament exodus was the high watermark of God's redemptive work and, and power. And it, uh, in the Old Testament, everything that, that was talked about in terms of being wonderful, powerful, and redemptive was related back to Exodus. God's people there were set free of bondage, and they were established as his people in the land of Canaan. All of that is a prophetic picture of God's ultimate new exodus. This exodus achieved in and through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. People set free from bondage and people established as God's own. Through the cross, the great exodus can now begin. And this idea of exodus runs like a subterranean theme through the whole of John's gospel. The very fact that he's called the Passover lamb, that he's the true manna, that he's the light of God's presence as the ancient light had led the people through the wilderness. Jesus now stands and says, I'm the true light, the light of the world. He's the living water. Remember, Jesus, uh, uh, Yahweh provided water in the wilderness for Israel. Jesus is now saying, I'm the true and living water. All of these are Exodus themes, and they come to their climax in the cross as this Exodus is accomplished. Through the cross, the Father's purposes and character has been perfectly revealed. Remember, we've talked a lot about his glory, his essential essence, and his essential essence is perfectly manifest in the cross. He's the God of self-emptying love, full of grace and truth. And all of this was accomplished and finished at the cross. So it is finished, but clearly it hasn't ended. It is finished, so now it can begin. In verse 30, it says, He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. 
It's interesting that none of the Gospels say he died. They say something like he gave up, he yielded up. Again, unusual language, and it probably underlines the point that Jesus gave up his life voluntarily. Remember earlier in John, he'd said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's John chapter 10, verse 18. The Greek phrase translated by our English phrase, bowed his head, is used elsewhere in the Gospels. It's used in Matthew chapter 8 verse 20 and Luke chapter 9 verse 58, both of where it says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's the same phrase as he bowed his head. I think that highlights the fact that Jesus had come to his own, but his own had not received him. And the only place that he had to lay his head was a cross. In verses 31 through 37, we see Jesus' body in the hands of his enemies. Because, of the, because the, of the Sabbath regulations, the bodies of executed criminals needed to be dealt with so that they never hung on the cross during the Sabbath. The irony of this absolute hypocrisy should not be missed. The ritual of religion must be fastidiously observed while its inner principles have been so blatantly violated. The Roman soldiers came and broke the legs of the other two criminals. That indicates that at this point they were still alive. The breaking of the legs hastened their death, either by simply the shock of it or by virtue of the fact that their broken legs made it totally uh, impossible for them to push themselves up off the cross and grasp at breath. So as a result, they quickly died. It seems that Jesus was already dead and there was no point in breaking his legs. Unbeknown to the soldiers in not breaking the legs of Jesus, they were fulfilling the ancient scriptures. Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 states that the bones of the Passover lamb were not allowed to be broken. And in Psalm 34 verse 19 and 20 it says, The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all of his bones, not one of them shall be broken. One of the soldiers, however, did stick his spear into Jesus' side simply to prove that he was in fact dead. And John, who was an eyewitness, records that blood and water flowed out of the womb. That indicates medically that the pericardial, pericardial sac around the heart had been ruptured. And some people have suggested that Jesus died of a broken heart. Interestingly, in the old rabbinic traditions, it's said that when Moses struck the, the rock twice in the wilderness, first of all, blood came out and then water flowed from it. Of course, we have no record of whether that's true or not in terms of the scriptures, but it's an interesting thought. In verse 37, it states that the piercing of Jesus' side was the fulfillment of another scripture found in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which says, they will look upon the one they have pierced. In verses 38 through 42, we now have Jesus' body in the hands of his friends. That his friends were able to take his body down from the cross was quite unusual. Normally, the bodies of those publicly executed were simply dragged out and thrown into the valley of Hinnom, or, or as Jesus used to describe it, the valley of Gehenna, where it says the fires continually burnt. Joseph of Arimathea came and asked Pilate for the body, and Pilate acquiesced. Joseph appears in all four Gospels in his connection with the burial of Jesus, and we're told a little bit about him. We are told that he was a member of the ruling Jewish Sanhedrin, 
It says that in Mark chapter 15 and verse 43. We know that he was rich. It says that in Matthew 27 verse 57. Two of the Gospels tell us that he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God in Mark chapter 15 and verse 43 and in Luke chapter 23 and verse 57. And we know that he was a disciple, howbeit John says a secret one from this passage. He may well have been a secret disciple, somewhat intimidated by the Jewish leaders, but at this moment, when all the other disciples had fled, Joseph of Arimathea stood up to be counted. The other disciple in the scene is Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. And together they take Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus had 75 pounds or around 34 kilos of spices to embalm Jesus' body. That's about a hundred times more than Mary poured on Jesus' head and body at Bethany. And this is lavish by any standards, sufficient as befits a king. We know too that Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb. This was unquestionably Joseph's own sepulchre, one that he had prepared for his own future. And in this moment, he's willing to give up his future plans, his future security, his own careful preparations, and he gives them up for Christ. In verse 41, it says, At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. The one who was born from one who had not known a man, the one who had ridden on a colt that no man had ever ridden on, is now laid in a tomb that no man has ever been laid in. And that brings us to chapter 20. Chapter 20 starts, verse 1, early on the first day of the week. It's, it's interesting language. Why didn't John say, as might have been expected, on the third day? Perhaps it was to emphasize that something truly new had begun. Until the resurrection, nobody worshipped on a Sunday. The, the Jews worshipped on the Sabbath. And it's interesting, but church history or history tells us that for the first 300 years after the resurrection, Sunday was simply for Christians a normal working day. And in order to meet, Christians would meet at either 4 a.m. in the morning or 10 p.m. at night before or after a normal working day for worship and for sharing uh, in the Lord's Supper. I guess times like that would certainly sort out boy believers from men believers. The scripture tells us it was still dark. Now that was a physical fact of course, but in keeping with the way John has used the themes of light and darkness throughout the gospel, it may well be a theological statement as well. The disciples, the women were still in the dark about what was and what had happened. So Christianity begins in the most unusual place at the most unusual time. It begins in a cemetery and it begins in darkness. Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb. In all four Gospels we're told that it's the woman who are the first witnesses to what has transpired and their behaviour shames the somewhat supposedly bolder men. Now the question arises, did Mary come to the tomb alone or was, with, was she with other women? The synoptic Gospels indicate that there was a group of women who came, whereas John's Gospel really only deals with Mary. There are a number of possibilities for this seeming contradiction. Firstly, Mary may well have come alone at first and then returned later with the other woman. It may well have been that she wasn't alone, but John, as is his custom in, in his gospel, uh, focuses on an individual. 
it might well be the case that that's true because in verse 2, Mary does say, we, plural, don't know where the body has gone. Now, we simply can't be sure whether John is just focusing on Mary as an individual or, or whether there, there was a group or we, we simply don't know. Some people seize on these differences to try and prove that the Gospels aren't reliable and somehow doubt should be cast on the veracity of the Scripture. I'd want to suggest that none of these variations affect the overall story. They are minor details. And in actual fact, such variations surrounding minor details are so true to the human experience. Eyewitnesses rarely concur on all of the details of an accident, for example. Was the car black or was it dark blue? How many people were in it? Was it three or was it four? Did the driver have sunglasses on? Minor details are always somewhat contradictory. When there is exact agreement between witnesses, most detectives suspect collusion. If the story is a made-up one, then it is highly unlikely that the early Christians would have invented it, including the testimony of woman. At that time, not all testimony was regarded as having equal weight. Jesus' contemporaries, for example, did not esteem the testimony of woman. And there's simply no apologetic reason to invent the fact that the women are there first. In fact, there are a number of good reasons to leave it out, except for the fact that this was the way it actually happened. And the whole story has such a ring of authenticity and truth to it. When Mary arrived at the tomb, she immediately noticed that the great stone blocking the tomb had been moved. Now Mark 16 records that the woman on their way to the tomb discussed how they were going to move the stone once they got there. That was no easy task. The stone was a huge circular stone weighing probably between one and two toms and it was rolled into a groove in the ground in front of the, in front of the sepulchre. In addition, we know that the tomb had been sealed and was being guarded by soldiers. So Mary on arrival is surprised to find that the seal has been broken, the stone has been moved and the soldiers are gone. It seems that her first thought was that of grave robbers. They would come and possibly seek to take the expensive linen and the spices. So with that thought in mind, Mary runs off and reports to the disciples what she's seen. She goes to Peter and John, and they immediately come to check out her story. Somewhat amusingly, John records that he outran Peter. When they arrive at the tomb, their actions are such a typical expression of their personalities. Tombs were regarded as unclean places, so John, the more sensitive, peeks in but won't go in. Peter puffs up and throws caution to the wind and enters into the tomb to see what's going on. And what he finds is the grave clothes inside ruling out the fact that grave robbers had been there. Grave robbers took the linen and the spices and left the body, but here the linen and the spices remain and the body is gone. A body was wrapped in about 30 metres of cloth, with spices being placed between the layers of binding. The head was then wrapped separately. When Peter looks, the two pieces lay where the body had once been. They were like a discarded chrysalis from which, the, from which the butterfly had emerged. And Jesus had simply stepped out of them in the same way that later he would step into a room that had its doors locked. 
This resurrection story is so different from what we see happening in the case of Lazarus, where he emerges still wrapped in grave clothes and has to be loosed. Jesus requires no assistance to throw off every trace of death and grave. In verse 8, it says, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John, also went inside, and the scripture says he saw and believed. Now, it's clear that while John's belief was genuine, it certainly was in its infancy and it wasn't with full understanding because in verse 9 it says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This sensitive soul who was so often the quickest to see things, as we'll see in the next chapter, he realized something special was underway. Now, verse 10 tells us that Peter and John left the site of the tomb, but Mary remained. Love lingers. She then ventures into the tomb as the others had done, and she sees two angels, one where Jesus' head had lain and the other where his feet would have rested. Crucified between two thieves, he is now resurrected, it seems, between two angels. Two angels positioned in this manner should make us think of another place where two angels faced each other in this way. It was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and it was on a piece of furniture that was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold-covered box, on top of which were two cherubim facing each other, reaching out and touching the tips of their wings. They reached out so that the place under the tip of their wings um, was covered, and it was a place that was called the Mercy Seat. The mercy seat was the place where atonement was made by the high priest on the sacred day of atonement. Later, Paul in Romans chapter 3 verses 24 and 25 speaks to this and says, Being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sin that's, sins that were previously committed. Now, the Greek word translated by our English word propitiation is hilasterion, and it literally means the mercy seat. It's the place where Jesus' blood is shed to provide atonement, and the angelic creatures bear witness of the fact, of its, of its fact and of its power. In verse 13, the angels ask Mary, why is she crying? Now that question isn't a question to elicit information, it is in fact a gentle rebuke. Your tears of sorrow are misplaced and are not in sync with the new reality. She's looking for a dead body where there is none. In verse 14 she turns and Jesus is standing there. She doesn't recognise him in the same way that the two men or two people on the road to Emmaus hadn't recognised him either. The facts of this new reality stand before her but it seems that grief binds her. And grief can still have that effect. Grief at injustice, our own or that of others, can often blind us to the presence of Jesus and his reality. Jesus also asks Mary, why are you weeping? Assuming him to be the gardener, she asks if he knows where the body might be. And in verse 16, Jesus simply calls her name, Mary. It's his voice that breaks Mary into the new reality. Not his face, nor his touch but his voice. And that's, of course, true for so many of us. Mary is spoken and written in Aramaic, not Greek, as is the rest of the gospel. The Aramaic is literally translated Miriam. 
It's her native name in her native language. And it fits with Jesus' prior teaching that his own sheep would recognize his voice in chapter 10 and verse 3. What was present in that tone that broke Mary into that new reality? We all know tone communicates. Remember your mother's tone when you were in trouble or perhaps when your spouse speaks your name in a particular tone. You know by the tone what is coming. The tone of Jesus' voice broke Mary into a new reality. It's a really interesting aside, perhaps, to study places where God calls people by their names, and especially when he repeats their name. You know, in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 11, Abraham, Abraham. In Genesis 46 verse 2, Jacob, Jacob. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 10, Samuel, Samuel. Then in Luke chapter 10 verse 41, Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, and in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul. The tone breaks through into Mary, and she responds, Rabboni, which is also Aramaic. Now, verse 17 is quite a difficult verse to understand, because it says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. Some translations have, don't touch me. But clinging, I think, probably fits the emotional character of the meeting more accurately. And it seems that Mary, having laid hold of him, wasn't about to let him go, ever. And maybe, this is supposition, but maybe Jesus was saying something to Mary along the lines of, this is a time of joy and for sharing the good news sharing the good news with my brothers and not for clutching to me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true, Mary. Perhaps Jesus is warning Mary not to be excessively attached to his physical presence because things are different now and soon, though his bodily presence will be removed, the Holy Spirit will be coming to dwell in her. So he says, go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Up until this point, Jesus had spoken about God as his father or the father. He'd called his followers disciples, servants, and even on one occasion, friends. But it seems in this moment that something has changed. Now it's my brothers. It's our father, my father and your father. Something has altered decisively. A new relationship has been created and entered into. You know, when I was at primary school, I had a much beloved teacher. He was an incredibly powerful influence for good in my life and in the life of my siblings. And he became a family friend and would often come to our home for meals and for Christmas celebrations. Always out of respect, I called him Sir or Mr. Hayward. There came a time in my late teens when he took me aside and said, Donald, you can call me Pat. Something changed. It was a new level of friendship. I went from subordinate to colleague or friend, from sir to pat, from teacher to friend. And I suspect something like this is happening as well. And they are being ushered into the relational existence of John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus is face-to-face with his Father. We're being invited into that face-to-face relationship. In verse 18, our mourner becomes a missionary. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples what, that, that she had seen the Lord and that, and that he had spoken these things to her. 
In verses 19 to 23, Jesus keeps his promise to his disciples. Remember in chapter 14, verse 8, he said, I will come to you. In 14, 19, he said, and you will see me. And in 16, 20, he said, your sorrow will be turned into joy. The record goes, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <clears throat> so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, and as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. <clears throat> Excuse me. The disciples were shut up and locked in for fear of the Jews. And, quite frankly, it wasn't an unreasonable fear. After taking out the leaders in the normal course of events, the powers that be would generally round up <clears throat> the key followers so that there's no chance of the renewal of this cause under a new leader. In addition to that, a rumour was going around that the body was missing and that they were the key... Uh, the key they'd been accused. They were the key suspects in this stealing incident. So they were expecting a knock on the door at any moment. Then suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. It seems contrary to what we have sometimes been led to believe, where people say he stands at the door and knocks, he will never enter uninvited. Sometimes he just walks right in and locked doors can't keep him out. You just can't shut Jesus out. And he says to them in verse 21, peace be with you. In the Middle East, even today, the common greeting is Shalom Aleichem, I wish you peace. But this isn't just a wish, this is a reality. This peace has been procured through the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And he's saying in effect, I've come to give you the very things that you need. The last thing he had said to them before his arrest was, these things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace. And now he bookends that time of trauma and confusion and grief with his peace. In verse 21, he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. This is a restatement of John chapter 17, verse 18. The message reads, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. Their mission proceeds from his. We don't take over Jesus's ministry, rather his ministry continues through us and we are commissioned to continue his work, not start a new one. His mission is the model for ours and that mission is obviously impossible without the person of the Holy Spirit. So it's completely unsurprising that the very next thing he does is breathe on them so that they may receive the Holy Spirit and we see that in verse 22. A good deal of theological ink has been spilled over how we are to relate this incident to the later outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Greek word translated by our English word breathed is emphuseo, and the only time, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. However, it is used in the Septuagint twice. The Septuagint, remember, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament and it's found there twice once in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 where we have God breathing into the form of Adam and creating a living being and the second in Ezekiel 37 verses 5 and 9 where the Holy Spirit is breathing on the dry bones to create a living company of soldiers so this is the breath of life being imparted to them when God breathes a creative act 
takes place. This is the first occasion that Jesus could actually impart to them resurrection life, eternal life in its fullest extent. This is the beginning of new creation. In verse 23, he says, if you forgive sins, they are forgiven. If you retain them, they are retained. What did Jesus mean by that? Men don't have the power to forgive sins. That's God's prerogative. Surely only he can do that. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus spoke to the paralytic man and said, uh, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the, the um, Pharisees immediately responded, Who can forgive sins but God alone? The forgiveness of sins is the climactic exhibition of power that belongs to God alone. And I, I don't think you and I are being invited to share that prerogative. I think what Jesus is saying here is this isn't about dispensing forgiveness. This is about declaring it. We get to affirm what God has done. The perfect tense of the Greek may be intended to mean that those who are pronouncing forgiveness are merely confirming what has already taken place from God's perspective. Of course, that doesn't necessarily explain retaining a person's sins. That's somewhat prob problematic. How, how or why would we do that? Perhaps under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, with the gift of discernment in operation, an occasion may arise where a person is able to point out an area in another person's life where sin has not been dealt with properly, properly effectively, or even at all. We see an illustration of this in Acts chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, where Peter says to Simon Magus, the magician, your heart is not right, you are still bound, repent. Now I say that with some trepidation because there are always people who think that Something like this gives them a license to kill when it comes to pointing out sin. I would want to say that I think such occasions are very rare, and the last thing that I'd want to encourage is people assuming the role of the Holy Spirit and trying to bring conviction to people's sin. Nevertheless, having said that, it does seem that there are perhaps rare times when we speak what heaven has already declared with regard to sin having been retained. Verses 24 through 29 record Jesus' encounter with Thomas. And it says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We've seen the Lord. So he said unto them, Unless I see his hands in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hands here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet who have believed. Thomas was a twin. Scripture doesn't tell us anything about his other twin. Was the twin a brother or a sister? Were they identical twins? Did the other twin follow Jesus? Even identical twins can have completely different destinies. I remember teaching in my teaching career a set of twin, twins. One of them um, came to Christ. The other did not. Four decades later, one of them still follows Christ. The other does not. For whatever reason, we're not told about Thomas's twin. 
What we are told is that Thomas wasn't originally with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them in that first resurrection appearance. They'd obviously found him and told him what had happened, and he was somewhat cynical. I sometimes think that Thomas has been given something of a bad rap. Of course, we all know him as Doubting Thomas. But as you look at Thomas through the gospel, he seems to be a man with a practical, literal mind and yet a very loyal heart. He needed, like many of us, to have things simple and plain. In John chapter 14, when Jesus announced that he was going away and that the disciples knew the way that he was going, it's Thomas who protests. We don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? He's a down-to-earth man, a man of integrity and practicality. I suspect that as much as he wanted to believe, he knew that dead people stayed dead 100% of the time. He would, near, he would need much more than hearsay evidence from people that he knew, like him, had been near delirious with grief and confusion at what had recently transpired. He didn't trust his own ears when they said he is risen. He didn't trust his own eyes or their eyes when they said we've seen him. I can imagine him saying, yeah, my aunt saw her dead husband lots of times after he died. Haven't you heard of hallucinations? I'd need to touch him before I believe. I need assurance that it's reasonable to believe. If I could touch his wounds, then I would believe this so-called good news. Thomas was practical enough to know that good news is not good news unless it's true news. This isn't unreasonable. Faith and reason are not antithetical. Faith is not blind, it is based on evidence. The key question here that Thomas must answer and that we too must answer is, is, is the Jesus of faith the Christ of history? And the resounding answer is yes. Faith is reasonable, it's evidence-based. Thomas wasn't going to fall for some trite nonsense like, well, he lives on in our memories, or his cause continues to live on in us. He's saying, I need to see him, I need to touch him, then I'll believe. Now Jesus, though physically absent, hears Thomas's conversation, and a week after his first appearance, this time with Thomas present, he appears to them again. And he says to Thomas, reach your finger here, touch my hands, reach your hands there, touch my side, do not be unbelieving but believing. You know, there's no record that Thomas actually did what Jesus had invited him to do. There's no record that he actually touched his hands or touched his sides. He simply fell at Jesus' feet and said, my Lord and my God. That is an extraordinary statement for a Jew to make, strictly monotheistic as they are. And this statement is the high watermark of John's gospel. Thomas has more than a proof. He has a person. With a proof, he might respond, oh, my goodness, it's really true. He's alive. Now what? George MacDonald once profoundly remarked, seeing isn't believing, it's only seeing. I know people who have seen and experienced miracles personally, who have either not become followers of Jesus, or who, if they were followers of Jesus, have since turned away. When we encounter a person, we don't just simply intellectually acknowledge the proof, we worship the person, and that changes everything. Proof is good and needed, but proof ultimately must become person with a capital P. Thomas's confession forms an inclusio with the prologue, where we are introduced to Jesus as God, and Thomas closes the bracket, as it were, placing a frame around the material. Verse 29, he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. The fourth gospel has only two Beatitudes, one in chapter 13, verse 17, where it says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do it, and this one here. 
Those who don't physically see Jesus and yet believe through the words of those that did don't have an inferior faith with inferior results. In fact, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says this, You never saw him, yet you love him. You still don't see him, yet you trust him. With laughter and singing, because you keep on believing, you'll get what you're looking forward to, total salvation. Paradoxically, it might be that believing without seeing is actually a greater form of faith, for it involves taking God at his word. Verse 30 and 31 constitutes John's statement of purpose for writing the gospel. It's his raison d'etre. And we looked at that at the beginning of the study, so I won't go back over it here. So we now come into chapter 21. This chapter is called the Epilogue. Some scholars suggest that it was added at a much later date and possibly by a person different than John. However, there's no textual evidence for that. The gospel was never, ever published, as far as we know, without chapter 21. The epilogue has to do with unfinished business, especially as it relates to Peter. So verse 1 says, Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. He revealed himself to his disciples. And such revelations are a common thread through the Gospel of John. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 31, John the Baptist came that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. In chapter 2, verse 11, the first sign in Cana revealed his glory. In chapter 9, verse 3, the blind man also revealed his glory. And in chapter 17, verse 6, Jesus reveals the Father's name. So here, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples at Galilee. Verse 14 tells us that this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. So at the Lake of Galilee, there are some disciples. Verse 2 tells us who was present, Simon Peter. Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. And verse 3 tells us what they were doing. Peter had declared, I'm going fishing, and the others decided to join him. The Greek tense of Peter's declaration indicates durative, progressive, ongoing, or habitual action. This isn't, I think I might go fishing for a little while. This is, I'm going back to the fishing business. Now, not all scholars agree, but there are those who have described Peter's actions here as unthinkable, and one who strongly says this is complete apostasy. Peter, it seems, has decided to return to the life that he knew before Jesus had impacted his life. I I guess there's nothing new in that. In our time, people people describe others as deconverting. Now, it used to be called apostasy, or more colloquially, Backsliding, but in keeping with our trendy, politically correct psychobabble, we've, re- we've renamed it deconversion to make it somewhat mildly intelligent. In the end, can people who are totally confused sometimes return to what they knew? And I suspect that there's something happening like that in Peter's life. Um, as you look back over the Gospels, there's an indication that there, may, there might be some kind of recurring pattern here. In Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, there's a passage which says this. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats full that they were about to sink. When Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and his, all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. The chronology of Jesus' ministry isn't easy to work out because there isn't just one narrative. Each gospel tells us its own story, and trying to integrate the story has, some, has been somewhat a challenge, of a challenging task for scholars. For example, the question arises, when did Jesus first call his disciples, especially Peter? When was he first called? Now, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 20 says, As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. I don't know about you, but it always amazed me that the very first time it appears that Jesus walked by and spoke to these men, they willingly left their nets and their families and followed him. And I, and I think, there's no way I would have. I would have wanted to know who this stranger was. What, who are you and why are you calling me to follow you? However, as you begin to unpack the chronology of the Gospels, you come to realise that that wasn't the first time that Jesus had encountered these men. John's Gospel has a chronology that is quite different from the synoptics and it helps explain the disciples' actions. The first five chapters of John's Gospel fit between the time that Jesus came back from the wilderness after the tempting and the beginning of his ministry. Now, Matthew and Luke pick up the story after John's first five chapters. Now, that's, that's almost a year between those between those incidents. Uh, and during that time, these men had spent a considerable time in Jesus's company. John chapter 1 records Peter's first encounter with, with Jesus. And in verse 29 and verse 42, Jesus speaks to Simon and renames him Peter Cephas the Rock. In chapter 2, they're present when Jesus turns the water into the wine. They're present when Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time. They were involved in baptizing people who were coming to Jesus. We see that in chapter 3, verse 22. He, they were there when he spoke to the woman at Samaria. They were there when he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. They saw the lame man healed at the pool of Bethsaida. That all happens in the first year of Jesus' ministry. At the end of that year of ministry, Matthew picks up the story as Jesus walks by and calls them to follow him. It seems that up to that point, the disciples had been coming and going as far as being with Jesus was concerned. We might say that they were bivocational. They would travel with Jesus at times and then return to their families and their livelihood fishing. In chapter 4, verse 18 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus had had decided that a step of faith was required from them and he calls them, as it were, into full-time ministry. 
This background information, information makes the whole story so much more believable. Jesus was not a mysterious stranger. They had spent a considerable amount of time with him. They had experienced some of the resistance that was growing against him and that would continue. And as it came up against him, it also came up against them. So they had an opportunity to count the cost and discuss things with their families. This was the time to leave their business permanently and their families temporarily and follow. It's then that we find ourselves in Luke's story, the one that I just read in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now the temptation is to think that the Matthew 4 and the Luke 5 story are actually similar incidents or the same incident recorded just slightly differently by the gospel writers. But as you compare them, they are clearly different incidences. In Matthew's, the disciples are in the act of fishing. They are casting their nets and it seems that Jesus is alone. And Luke, the disciples weren't fishing, they were on shore mending their nets, and Jesus wasn't alone in Luke's story. There was a multitude of people pressing him so that he had to climb into the boat and push off from shore so that he could better speak to them. In Luke's story, Jesus sees two boats on the shore, and he commandeers one of them, and after speaking to the crowd from this makeshift pulpit, he instructs the owner of the boat, who happens to be Peter, to go out fishing. Peter says that they'd been fishing all the previous night and hadn't caught anything, so that there wasn't a lot of point. Nevertheless, they go out and take a miraculous draft of fish, so much so that the nets nearly break and they nearly sink. Now you might be thinking, so what's this all about, Don? What's your point? We've moved a long way from John 21. Peter had known Jesus for a year. Jesus had called Peter to full-time ministry, and yet here in Luke, he is fishing. Why? What had happened between Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 5? Well, we aren't told, but it's not hard to guess. Being in full-time ministry is a radical change of lifestyle. I know many people who have entered full-time ministry and who have really struggled to make the change. And it's along the lines of Peter saying, when I was a fisherman, at the end of the day, I knew whether it had been a good day, an average day, or a bad one. I could count the fish. This business of dealing with people is driving me crazy. I don't know what constitutes success anymore. And I've heard many people say exactly the same, only they substitute fishing for building or make, fixing cars or whatever it is. Perhaps Peter simply missed his family. I mean, the reality is Jesus could be very confusing at times, and people got really upset with him. And as a result of getting upset with him, they turned on the disciples, and they weren't exempt from criticism. Maybe it had all got just too much for Peter, and he'd headed back to what he knew. Under pressure, he turned back to what was familiar and comfortable. And if we're truthful, we all know how that works. How often under pressure do you simply turn back to that which is familiar? And frankly, some of those familiar patterns can be quite destructive and yet under pressure, perversely comforting, whether it's food or self-pity or pornography or alcohol or workaholism, any number of addictions that are comfortable and that under pressure we turn to. Now for Peter, it seems it's business, it's fishing. Fishing, I know, he says. So Jesus comes along in Luke and Peter is caught in the act. There are two boats on shore, one belonging to Peter and one to an unnamed fisherman. I suspect if I had been Jesus, I would have chosen the other boat. I would have taken the opportunity to show Peter that he had, pun intended, missed the boat. 
You've had your chance. You left me, and now I'm returning the favour. You don't know what you've turned your back on, Peter. I would have got into the other boat. And before you think less of me, I'm in good or perhaps bad company. Paul did that, exactly the same thing with John Mark. On their first missionary journey, the young John Mark, who had initially accompanied Paul and Barnabas, uh, he didn't last. He turned back and returned home after a short period. The next time they were ready to make a trip, Barnabas wants to give John Mark another chance. He wants to step into John Mark's boat, as it were, and say, come on, let's have another try. Paul refused, and they fell out over the matter and parted company. Paul, stopped and, uh, Paul stepped, as it were, into the other person's boat. Jesus, in an act of mercy and grace, steps into Peter's boat, pushes off and preaches a sermon. I suspect Peter felt somewhat cornered, and I'm not sure that he would have enjoyed that sermon at all. At the end of the sermon on Jesus' instructions, they go fishing and catch a miraculous draft of fish, and Peter falls at Jesus' feet and confesses, I'm a sinful man. It's there that Jesus renews his call to be one who catches men, and again he is inviting Peter to follow him. Now fast forward two more years, and it seems Peter's back to his old pattern. I'm going fishing. Perhaps this time he felt totally disqualified. Perhaps he felt I might as well jump before I'm pushed. Jesus forgave me once for doing this, but, but it's unreasonable to expect that he will forgive me twice. Remember at that charcoal fire where I said so vehemently, I am not, I am not one of his disciples. I do not know this man. Peter, like so many others, uh, is haunted by an unresolved past and because of it he's quite unable to enter into a new and present future. Here in John chapter 21 the disciples had been fishing all night without catching anything and you have to know this is unusual. The Sea of Galilee is abundant with fish. These guys are professional. They are fishing at the right time, night and with the right equipment but they haven't caught anything. This had only happened to them once before and it was in Luke chapter 5. It must have made them think about the other time. And then someone from the shore shouts to them. The Greek says, lads, lads, have you caught anything? No, they say. Cast your net on the right side. Now, casting a net on the right side would have been an unusual move in these boats since the steering oar was normally on the right-hand side, which meant they needed to throw their nets out onto the left side. But they do it. And someone has suggested perhaps that the greatest miracle of John 21 is that the fishermen took advice from a bystander. There is a possible reason they responded to the stranger's advice. H.V. Morton in his book In the Steps of a Master tells a story of an Arab man named Abdul who stood on the shores of the lake shouting instructions to his friends who were about 100 metres offshore. Apparently he could see because of the angle things in the sea that the men in the boat couldn't. They'd been somewhat blinded by the reflection of the sky on the surface of the water. And so from the shore, he was telling them where to cast. They follow the instructions of the stranger and suddenly their nets are, stranger, uh, are straining with a huge catch and all the memories come flooding back to John, the sensitive one. And he's the first to respond. Verse 7, it's the Lord. Peter, true to his character as the impulsive one, gets dressed to go f swimming. It says that he was naked, he puts on his clothes and dives in. If he's going to face the Lord, he wants to be halfway decent. David Pawson tells the story of a friend of his who was a beach mission pastor, and he'd been preaching on the beach for a number of days about the glories of heaven. 
One day he took a break and went swimming himself. He got into difficulty and he cried out for help. The lifeguard came to his rescue and managed to get him to shore. And once on shore, the lifeguard said to him, I've heard you talking about the glories of heaven for days now, and the first chance you get to go there, you call out for help. How does that work? The pastor, not to be outdone, looked down on his swimming togs and said, If I'm going to go, I'd like to be half decent on arrival. The other disciples stay on their boats. They drag the nets to shore. John records that there were 153 very large fish. Scholars and people find all kinds of symbolism in the number 153, some of the insights being almost comical. I'm not sure in this instance whether the 153 fish are more symbolic than the 100 metres Peter had to swim to get to shore. I think it just means it was a really, really good catch. They arrive on shore and find that Jesus has a meal cooking and he invites them to share it with him. There's so much about this scene that seems to be especially staged for Peter. It's on the shores of Galilee, the place where he had been first called into full-time ministry. It's the place where that call was renewed after Peter had returned to the fishing business. <clears throat> In verse 9, there's a charcoal fire with fish over it. Remember, it was by a charcoal fire that Peter vehemently denies that he knows Jesus. You can check that out in chapter 18, verse 18. The sight, sound, smell and touch of its warmth would have stirred, I think, some hurtful, unresolved memories in Peter. Jesus wanted Peter to face his unfinished business. I suspect that some of us have our own charcoal fire. Things that have caused us shame and guilt and fear and bitterness. Things that prevent us from entering into what God wants for us. It's painful for Peter, but he and we need to understand that not all pain is destructive. Sometimes it's the pain of surgery. Deep and unhealed wounds can be gently exposed and healed with love and prayer. In verse 15, after the meal, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now the question is, who or what are these? Could Jesus mean the other disciples? Is Jesus saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Which I suspect is probably not what he's asking. Maybe he was saying, do you love me more than these men, the, the, the love that you have for these men? Or did he mean, do you love me more than these things, the boats, the nets, the fish, the fishing business, that which you have gone back to under pressure. Do you love me more than these things? I would opt for that last option. Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Now, some commentators make a great deal out of the different Greek words that are used for love in this passage that Jesus and Peter use. The two words are agapeo and phileo. And taking those words, the conversation goes something like this. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, I'm very fond of you. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I'm very fond of you. Jesus says, Peter, are you fond of me? And Jesus and Peter says, yes, you know that I'm very fond of you. So Peter uses fond when love was required. Yeah, I suspect if that's the case, you could imagine Jesus' disappointment. Can you imagine a conversation between a boy and a girl along these lines where the girl, perhaps in her insecurity, says to the boy, do you love me? And he responds, I'm very fond of you. I, I suspect there would have been no more questions. She would have gone off in tears and he would have been asking in classic male style, what did I say? 
As much as making a lot of this distinction of Greek word preaches well, it actually probably isn't justified. The two words are most often used interchangeably in the New Testament, and in John in particular. In John chapter 3 verse 35 and John chapter 5 verse 20, it has the Father loves the Son, and the two words are used, and they're used interchangeably. In John chapter 11, where it says Jesus loved Lazarus, in verse 5 and verse 36, both words are used interchangeably. I think actually Peter is not grieved because Jesus changes the word and in so doing perhaps lowers the bar, but because Jesus had to answer the, ask the question three times. In verse 17, Peter says, you know all things and you know that I love you. Then Jesus renews and reissues his call to Peter. Verse 19, follow me. Verse 22, you follow me. Peter the fisherman is once again called to be Peter the pastor shepherd. Peter became not the first pope, but the first pastor. Verse 18 and 19, he says, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. As the shepherd, Peter would follow in the footsteps of his good shepherd, ultimately to a death on a cross. According to tradition, Peter was crucified, and impulsive to the last, Peter asked to be crucified upside down, since he said he didn't deserve and was not worthy to suffer in the same way that his Lord had done. In verse 20 and 21, Peter turns and sees John and asks Jesus if he has an encouraging prophecy for him too. What about this man? Peter is kindly told to mind his own business. Don't worry about the pathway others may be taking. Consider your own. Comparisons are really helpful or healthy. Jesus responds to Peter's question by saying, If I want this man to remain until I return, what is that to you? And John explains how from this time on, a, a rumour was started. You know, some, some things are timeless. The rumour was that John wouldn't die. John points out that this is not what Jesus said. And again, here at the end, people misunderstand Jesus' words as they had right at the beginning of the story. They invariably made his words literal when they weren't intended to be. Remember, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. And they thought he was talking about a physical building. Eat my flesh and eat my blood and they accuse him of cannibalism. Here at the end of the story, people are still doing something of the same order of things. A rumour starts that John will live until Jesus comes again. John said that is not what he was saying. John concludes his story, and I conclude this series of messages, by saying this. This is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.